wonder-working stars in the precious... Incredible as they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. <laughs> You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station. When I was in university, there was this bar along here called Flynn's. Flynn's was worse than a dive. It was a dump, a slag heap, downright unhygienic. It was the sort of place with the same number of people in it at 11am and 2am, and often the exact same ones. You could stick your head in the door at noon and it would already be night inside. The people who drank there had been banished from the day. You wouldn't know, looking at it now, but Back before the Starbucks and the Gold Leaf soft serve place, this was an immigrant neighborhood. Most recently, Ethiopian, but before that, Korean, Portuguese, Italian, Jewish, and originally, Irish. Our guess was Flynn's had been there since the old Irish days, which would mean 1870, at the latest. We'd like to joke that the bathrooms hadn't been cleaned that entire time. We started going in first year, because Flynn's didn't check ID, the first time we walked in, every pair of eyes in the place swiveled towards us. We were kids. Everyone there looked to be between 50 and 200. We almost turned right back around and left because the place was... no other word for it, scary. But we were kids who wanted to get drunk illegally, and so we sat ourselves down and came back every week. And because the whole point of Flynn's was that it served all comers, we were treated with a kind of brutal, indifferent welcome. The beer was awful, the bartender overcharged us, and the draft lines were so filthy that we had hangovers the moment we sat down. Once, I watched not just a cockroach, but a dying cockroach drag itself the entire length of the bar, while the bartender just watched. But the place became a kind of home for us. Even us, the privileged kids who held everyone there in contempt. Flynn's didn't judge. Judgment was for other institutions. Flynn's was for those who were left. So by the time we graduated, we were all regulars, along with the winos, former prostitutes, and retired teamsters. It was always the same bartender, who we called Mickey Flynn, even though he was First Nations, spoke mostly Polish with the regulars, and probably had no relation to the historical Flynn, if there ever was such a person. It just seemed funny to us that the bartender at Flynn's should be called Flynn, and he, returning our ironic affection, only overcharged us a dollar a drink by the end. For all it was the kind of place university kids thought of as rough, Flynn's always had a kind of jaded tranquility. Only once in four years did I ever see any drama, even though all the other university bars had weekly brawls and screaming matches. This was, uh, in my graduating year. Flynn's had a regular, a homeless guy we called the Professor for his filthy white beard. 
and because we thought it was funny to be cruel. The professor mostly sat on his own in the back, drinking warm pints of runoff that Flynn didn't charge him for. It was a problematic kind of charity, but it was more than any of us ever did for anyone else. For whatever reason, one night, Flynn and the professor had an argument, and the professor started shouting. The kind of shouting that's too loud, too extreme, the kind that makes you head to the window with your phone out when it echoes off in the street. The professor started breaking glasses and Flynn wrestled him out the door. Come back when you're safe again, he said. After that, I went to refill my drink and get the dirt. Wow, I said. That was something. Who is that? God, I was such a piece of shit. Flynn looked at me like he was thinking the same thing and just said, What are you drinking? I ordered and he started to pour. The draft line sputtered. Calcium buildup. White flakes in the beer. A kidney stone waiting to happen. Why didn't you call the cops? I said. Flynn dismissed me with a glance. The professor was black, mentally ill, and homeless. The police had murdered two men like him that summer, and the officers who did it were still on active duty. I turned flush, paid, and slouched back to the table. It was one of the last times I set foot in Flynn's, before I started working there. Eight years can be a long time. Everybody has points in their life that they look back on and see how easily they could have screwed things up. Personally, I don't have the benefit of being able to look back and know I made the right choices. I had some bad years after university, and by the time I was staring down the barrel of 30, a steady bartending gig was my version of having your shit together. I'd recently left my job at Bar Sloan after a crisis that was... For once, not my fault. I was afraid of unemployment. There were some bad habits I could have easily fallen back into. Luckily, an old co-worker was opening a new place and was looking for experienced people to come in and see if it would be a good fit. I said yes. I needed the money, but more than that, I needed to be busy. And that's how, almost a decade later, I found myself standing outside the place that had once been Flynn's. The neighborhood was unrecognizable, already starting to look the way it does now. There was a gluten-free bakery and a dispensary for pothead dads. Flynn's had been one of the last spots to gentrify, and it sat abandoned for five years. Now, the old sign had finally been torn down. In its place, a sleek new triumph of graphic design announced itself as Afterlife. A poster in the window guaranteed a premium cocktail lounge experience coming to the neighborhood this May. Through the clear new windows, I could see my friend Jill clearing aside boxes and plastic packing. The place was almost finished. A bar top of green serpentine slithered down one wall, and rows of unpacked chairs and tables were stacked by the windows. Neon lights writhed from the weathered brass back bar like something out of 19th century Paris. I knocked at the door, and Jill was so startled by the sound that she staggered, nearly smashing her head against the back bar. I waved, and she put a hand to her chest, taking a deep breath as she steadied herself. After a moment, she came and let me in. Jesus, you scared the shit out of me. I looked at my phone. It was exactly the time she told me to meet her. Surprised I'm on time? She laughed, still looking a little pale. I guess so, she said. I just don't like being here alone at night. It was a few minutes before she seemed fully herself. You wouldn't believe the amount of work we've had to do, she said. The place was a wreck, so much rot we had to practically rebuild from the ground up. Someone must have been squatting in the basement at some point. They'd been using an unhooked-up toilet. 
She gagged at the memory. Calcified waste, she added. Actually, I said, I would believe all that. I came here all the time back in university. It was exactly that kind of place. Her eyes narrowed. You don't say, she said. Isn't that just the strangest coincidence? <laughs> that was an uncomfortable thought, so I tried to move past it. <clears throat> uh, it's a lot more my speed now, though, I said. Your design? Of course, Jill was a design freak, so the question triggered a ten-minute digression about her personal aesthetic and Art Nouveau. The Paris Metro, Gaudi, Beardsley, Klimt. I'd taken enough art history courses to be able to drop a name or two, and by the end of the evening, I had myself the job. Looking back, I don't know how I ever thought I wouldn't end up working at Flynn's. Now there's an elegant fatalism to it. A warped Art Nouveau kind of symmetry. Afterlife, though, turned out to be exactly what you'd expect. Jill liked 20th century design. So did a dozen other millennial restaurateurs in the city. She'd found a good deal on light fixtures. So had they. She wanted to attract young knowledge workers who could afford $19 drinks containing Amaro whatever and lavender-fused who-gives-a-fuck. So did they. In short, Afterlife was pretty, but interchangeable with a dozen other places I'd worked. That is, for the first month. Until things started going wrong. Little things at first, things you'd expect to go wrong at a bar. A minor problem with fruit flies, we made sure to cover the taps. Graffiti started appearing in the bathrooms, some of it a bit aggressive. We repainted the stalls. One night, someone left the basement walk-in cooler open, and when I opened the next morning, the entire fridge was covered in mold. Covered. It was like someone had walked in with a fire extinguisher and sprayed white all over the floors, draft system, and soggy flats of tall boys. Lisa, who had been bartending the night before, swore up and down she'd closed and locked the cooler. But because she was 20, and because I now realize of my own latent misogyny, I didn't believe her. Until I flicked on the basement light one morning, two weeks later. The cooler door was wide open. I felt like I was witnessing... A magic trick. The night before, I'd been the last one there. I knew I had closed and locked the cooler. Hadn't I? I apologized to Lisa and spent the rest of the day cleaning out the fridge. This time, the mold squelching beneath my shoes wasn't white. It was a seeping, reddish-brown and stank like an unwashed body. I imagined spores taking root as I breathed them in, so even when I moved on, I'd be carrying a piece of flins around in my lungs. <laughs> flins. I still called it that in my head. Whenever I spoke to customers, I'd have to correct myself and say, afterlife. But with my friends, it was always flins. A week later, another one of my bartenders came up to me just after closing. I think you should take a look at this, she said. It was in the women's bathroom, the graffiti had metastasized. Someone with a sharpie had covered an entire wall in gibberish. Call fuck dumpster piece of shit you don't 4167789 to my bitch. Read the top line. The rest of it made about as much sense. The closest thing to a coherent thought was the admonition to mouth on my cum first. 
some individual phrases might have been funny if they hadn't been part of a hole that covered ten square feet in a wash of mindless, violent words. It was like someone with a head injury trying to write bathroom graffiti from memory. It was like a computer algorithm trying to approximate the things drunks scrawl onto stall walls. They'd used such force that the marker had dug through the palm frond wallpaper, scoring the white paint beneath. We replaced the ruined wallpaper, covering the marks, though the new paper wasn't so neat as the old had been. It took until nearly 5 a.m. Did you see anyone who might have done this? I asked. My staff shrugged. I hadn't noticed anyone suspicious either, but it was 2019, you never knew. I might have even suspected one of my own staff, if they weren't the ones who had to clean it up. The writing returned three days later. Sort of. I suppose the basement was damp. Moisture gathered in the indentations behind the new wallpaper, allowing spores to flourish. The gibberish had reappeared not in ink, but seeping reddish-brown mold. I bought a dehumidifier. We cleaned up, spackled, and put up new wallpaper. We were out of the original and had to use a different paper that didn't stick well to spackle, and came up around the edges. Within two days, a customer complained about something oozing from the loose wallpaper in the women's room. We closed up early. The wallpaper sloughed away at my first touch. Behind, the entire wall shone with glistening red-brown mold. I stared for a long moment. Behind me, Lisa gagged and steadied herself against a different wall. Then, hearing her gasp, I turned. She had gone completely white, her pupils shrunk to nothing. I asked her what was wrong. Wordlessly, she reached out. Her palm was reddish-brown. Where she had steadied herself against the wall, a handprint stood out dark from the green-pale fronds. Suddenly, the entire room stank. Stank like an unwashed body. And as I stepped forward, pressing the pad of one finger into the wallpaper, it yielded with a squelch welling up with red-brown fluid. <laughs> well, I called Jill, telling her we'll need a week off at least to clean this up. She swore. Next week, she said, after the long weekend. You might be wondering why we didn't close the place down for health and safety. If so, you've probably never worked in the service industry. The margins are thin. You need to make money. And even the nicest places just put a polite exterior over the ugliness behind the kitchen doors. That night, we hung a sign in the women's room reading, Out of Order. We took down the men's room sign, replacing it with one that said, Gender Neutral, and slapped another coat of paint over the mess of slurs, curses, and jabberwocky that had been written all over the stalls in there. After that, I told my staff we were having a drink. Nobody complained. I poured pints for everyone upstairs. It was a new draft system, and we had the lines cleaned every two weeks. Brewers Association standard. No flakes of calcium, no kidney stones. I poured my own pint last. A sound came from downstairs, but all my staff were upstairs, sitting at the bar in front of me. I paused, the pint lifted halfway to my mouth. I asked if anybody heard that, but before I even finished my question, I noticed they were all looking at me. The same... Horrified expression, it slackened all their jaws. What, I started to say, but as I did, I realized what they were looking at. The pint I was about to drink was a cloudy amber. Their pints were all clear golden lagers. Only, I had pulled all of ours from the same tap. 
The beer slipped from my fingers, bouncing from a rubber bar mat to spill across the bar. I snatched a pitcher from the glass washer, slamming it under the tap and ripping back the handle. For a moment, nothing happened. Then the tap sputtered. Dark foam slathered the inside of the pitcher. Then the tap began to flow, not with beer, but a viscous, red-brown ooze. The next morning, our draft technician told me over the phone that this was impossible. It would have to be coming directly from the keg, she said. Talk to your brewery rep. We changed the kegs over. The same thing happened. Ten kegs from ten different breweries, all with the same reddish-brown sheen growing over the couplers, all pouring the same stinking fluid. It has to be the draft system, then, Jill said. It's not the draft system, I said. It's Flint's. This was noon of the long weekend Friday. Outside, it was broad daylight. But even though the windows were spotless, it was night inside. A noise came from downstairs. Jill and I were the only people in the building. Our eyes met. Each of us saw that the other had heard. Neither of us acknowledged it. Afterlife, she said. The name of this place is Afterlife. Another sound came from downstairs. I recognized the click of the walk-in door unlatching, the groan of it falling open. No, it isn't, I said. And even if it was, why'd you choose a name like that? She ignored both the sound and the question, setting her jaw and staring at me with wide, wild eyes. No draft tonight, she said. Cocktails only. If we make good money this weekend, we can survive the hit and take a week to get back on our feet. If not, we're dead. There was a click from behind the bar. One of the taps swung open and a red-brown fluid exploded out, spattering from the drip tray to soil the glassware and back bar. Jesus! Can you get this place together? I was already on my feet at the bar, shutting off the tap and sliding on the mold-slick floors. You know it's not my fault, Jill! I shouted as she crashed out the door. It's Flynn's! She was already gone. The word Flynn's echoed in the empty space. I swore and began to clean up. It was going to be a bad night. Darkness fell, though inside the bar the only difference was that we put on the lights. The place filled up. Jill's vision might not have been as original as she thought, but there were enough yuppies in the city to fill a hundred places like Afterlife, and they came in throngs. It was loud. My staff were on form. The drinks went out on time, no matter how many arcane ingredients went into each one. Ariana was cranking on the speakers. I just stood behind the bar, getting steadily drunk and waiting for the other shoe to drop. It happened at midnight. Trying not to get too drunk, I'd switched from liquor to beer. With draft still down, I was drinking from a bottle. Unfiltered IPA, 6.7%. <laughs> I guess I still wanted to get pretty drunk. As midnight struck, I took a big swig. It was near the bottom of the bottle, and there was a lot of sediment. Something happened in the room. A silence fell, the sort you sometimes hear described as an angel walked into the room. <laughs> Everybody had a sort of funny look on their face. I swished the beer around in my mouth, feeling the sediment with my tongue. God, there was a lot of it. And then I realized the look on everybody's face at that moment was the one I was wearing. Thoughtful. Questioning. 
confused. And then everybody realized at the same moment I did that the texture in their mouths wasn't sediment. It was the texture of hair, an enormous clump of human hair. I shouted and spat, clawing at my tongue. The strands were clotted together, wrapped around my teeth and taste buds, pulling at me as I dragged them past my lips and I lifted the clump against the crimson neon glow. It was the size of a mouthful of chewing tobacco, the stank of an unwashed body streaming with saliva and red-brown ooze. I flung it to the ground where it made a thick splat. Ariana belted into the silence as each customer in the bar stared, glassy-eyed, at the clumps of hair they had pulled from their lips. Then the screaming began. Well. <laughs> well. Well, well, well. It didn't take long for everybody to clear out. My staff all cleared out with them. I didn't blame them. By 12.30 I was alone behind the till, with only one customer left in the place. An old man slouched at the end of the bar. His clump of hair lay next to his drink. You don't seem too bothered, I said, gathering up hairballs in a bar towel. He shrugged. Been drinking in dives long enough not to sweat the small stuff, he said. This isn't a dive, I said. He said, Sure it is, Flynn. I froze, then turned to look at him properly for the first time. He was angled away from me, watching traffic go by outside the foggy glass. Why did you just call me that? I said. He shrugged. Well, name of the place is Flynn's, he said. Stands to reason the bartender would be called Flynn. Right? He turned to face me, and it took me a moment to realize who he was, because I'd never seen him smile before, not once in the four years I'd come to Flynn's. It was the Polish-speaking First Nations bartender. He had nice teeth. Been a while, he said. Can't say I care for what you've done with the place. Well, I said, me neither. Been having some trouble, I see. I shrugged. He shrugged. Me too, he said, before I left. The basement, I said. Yeah, he said. That's where I found him. I felt a whooshing in my ears. That guy who was always here, he said. I think you settlers all figured he was homeless. His name was Flynn. He was the owner. The man shrugged. He was a friend of mine, growing up. Set me up with a job when he opened the place. Neither of us had things easy, and I wasn't doing so well then. But Flynn's was here for me. Later, when things went off the rail for him, I tried to keep the place going as best I could, so it could be here for him, too. The old man sighed and looked around at the marble, the brass, the neon lights. He hung his head. Well, believe it or not, there isn't much a business can do for a person when he's suffering. I found him downstairs one morning, down in that room you've turned into an out-of-order ladies. He made a gesture down along the inside of each wrist and shrugged. Good news for you, though, he said. Opened up the property so you could mosey in and build this place. Love that back bar. Art Nouveau, right? I nodded. He finished the rest of his drink and clinked the glass down on the bar. Love it, he said. Big fan of Egon Scheel myself. He stood to go. A small bell rang as he pulled open the door. 
Wait, I said. He hesitated, but didn't turn back. This stuff that's been happening. Is it Flynn? Or is it Flynn's? He raised one hand, dismissing the question without turning back. What's the difference? He said. People make places. Places make people. You can't just renovate the one and hope the other goes away. The door clicked shut behind him. I was left alone. I didn't spend that much time closing up. Afterlife was dead, and I was out of a job. The only thing I bothered to check was the ladies' bathroom. As I walked downstairs, every inch of the stairwell and basement hallway were covered in violent, nonsensical graffiti. The lights flickered, though it was all new wiring and I'd changed the bulbs that morning. I opened the door on that darkened room, and the smell boiled out of it strong enough to make you sick. I clicked on the light. In the wavering glow, the walls, floors, and ceiling were blanketed in dripping red-brown mold. All except for one spot in the corner, a patch of tile and pale palm tree wallpaper. It marked a perfect silhouette, the outline of a man's body slumped on the floor against the wall. I turned out the light and left afterlife forever. I didn't even lock the door behind me. Today, the building stands derelict, its windows boarded up. That slick triumph of graphic design has crumbled from the facade. Where it used to hang, you can still see the outline of the old sign, like a silhouette against the wall. It reads, Flynn's. The Wrong Station is made possible by the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Consider visiting today at patreon.com slash thewrongstation. You can also support us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes, or wherever it is that you listen to The Wrong Station. This week's episode, Flynn's, was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Anthony Botello. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Ilan Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmid. You can subscribe to The Wrong Station on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, and any other of your favorite podcast services. You can follow The Wrong Station on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. You can also follow The Wrong Station creative team on Twitter at AEW Saxton, AJV Batello, and Jacob BRDS. And until next time, thank you for listening.